often when we do these things, we have a discussion after the main talk so that you can pick up the points in it. This, tonight, we're doing it the other way around. I want you to talk around your tables about a few things, really to get you thinking about how we're going to get into this letter. Could we put the questions up on the screen, please? And here's the main question. How different do we, talking about Christians, need to be? Christians have to live in the world. You know, where else are we going to live? Um, some people have tried going off to monasteries and being out of it or um, living on remote islands or whatever. Most of us, we've got to live in the world. We have to engage with its culture and its values if we're going to reach people with the gospel. But we are also called to be holy. And the word holy means separate, different, set apart. And to have a different lifestyle from people around us. So what do you think, around your table, what do you think are the areas where Christians are good at this, being different in a positive way, living a lifestyle that's attractive to other people and different and God-like, Christ-like? And what are the areas where actually we're rubbish at it? We're not very good. And really, you couldn't tell the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian in that kind of situation. About eight or ten minutes possibly just chat around your table see what you come up with remember there's tea and coffee on the go if you want it okay keep those thoughts in mind regulars will know we are working our way through the beginning of the book of revelation this letter what we call the letters to the seven churches and we come to the third of them tonight, the church in Pergamum. All these churches are in what was the Roman province of Asia, roughly what we'd call Turkey today. And Pergamum is Revelation chapter 2, beginning at verse 12. Revelation 2, beginning at verse 12. All the letters are written to the angel of the church. Could mean the church leader, could be symbolically meaning the church. Nobody's absolutely sure. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. It's a letter from Jesus. That's the, the one who has the sharp, double-edged sword. The double-edged sword is the word of Jesus. Scripture and the words that Jesus speaks. We saw the very first week that it was tough to be a Christian in the pagan world in the first century. And Pergamon was a particularly tough place to be a Christian. All the usual sort of reasons about the whole social life 
and the business life of the city revolving around pagan worship. But there was an extra feature in Pergamon, in that Pergamon was really hot on emperor worship. At some point during the Roman Empire, the Romans, always looking for something to sort of bind people together, declared that the emperor was God, or at least he actually became God when he died, so the reigning emperor was the son of God. You can see how words like son of God applied to Jesus suddenly then take on political overtones as well as religious ones. And it was decided that all around the empire to show your loyalty to the emperor, you had to once a year burn a pinch of incense in a temple and say, Caesar is Lord. Now that was fine for most people. The Jews had an exemption, as we said um, the first week, the Jews had exemptions from almost everything because the Romans liked peace and they knew that Jews would rather die than betray their faith and they didn't want an uprising. Jews were exempt. Everybody else had to do this. And nobody minded because, you know, you could worship any number of gods. The fact that you worship Zeus or Apollo or Diana or whatever, didn't matter. You could still go along, burn your pinch of incense, say Caesar is Lord or Caesar is God. The Christians wouldn't do it. They said, Jesus is Lord. There is no other Lord, only Jesus. And in a lot of places, you could get away with that. You know what bureaucracy is like. You know, some places stuff's enforced more than others. But in Pergamon, they were really hot on it. They made sure that everybody sacrificed to the emperor. And so the Christians were persecuted quite strongly in Pergamon. That's probably why Antipas was put to death. We're not given any details, but it was probably over that issue of refusing to sacrifice to the emperor. It was a hard place to be a Christian. And the church had done really well despite the difficulties, despite the fact that literally they faced death, they had held on to their faith. One of them had gone to death. Others kept hold of the truth. They weren't going to be budged whatever the cost. But a bit like in that story of Balaam and Balak, where a frontal attack doesn't work, sometimes an attack from offside comes in. And that was happening in Pergamon. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Nobody knows a great deal about the Nicolaitans, but roughly the two things that were happening were this. That, oh, teachers were coming in and saying... Yeah, you're Christians. Yes, you believe in Jesus. Yes, you've been forgiven. But actually, now you're forgiven, you can live how you like. This was helped by the fact that there were another group that said you've got to keep all the Jewish laws. And Paul and others had said, no, that's not true. You don't have to keep all the sacrificial laws of the Old Testament. So this other group were coming in on the other extreme. You can live how you like. You can do what you want to. Brackets. 
you can burn that pinch of incense to the emperor because it doesn't mean anything. We might say you do it with your fingers crossed, you know. It doesn't mean anything at all. But there was more than just burning incense to Caesar because there were two things tied up with culture in the ancient world. And they're summed up there by talking food sacrifice to idols and sexual immorality. In the ancient world, around the first century and earlier, there was no sexual morality. If you were able, certainly middle class and upper class, you effectively locked up your wife. You kept her fairly sheltered for the very practical reason that you wanted to make sure that any children she had were your children because they were going to inherit your money. So she was kept sheltered and cloistered. Apart from that, it was assumed that men could have sex with who they liked, when they liked, how they liked, whatever they wanted to do. And to a certain extent, women could. Usually women trapped into prostitution. There were thousands of prostitutes. Every temple had its group of prostitutes and, and sex with prostitutes was part of worship, part of sacrificing to the God. There was a general free for all. And what's more, the ideas that we over 2,000 years have come to understand of chastity and faithfulness were not understood. If you were a bloke, and of course it was all male-centered in those days, if you were a bloke and you were not having sex, there was something seriously wrong with you. That was the, the culture of the day. Does that sound a bit familiar? Because that is actually the culture of our society today. There's always been a certain amount of sleeping around, adultery, having affairs, all this kind of stuff. There have always been prostitutes in every society down the years. And, but, ooh, what should we say, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, it was generally held as a value in society that you didn't sleep around. Of course, people did, but the value of society was it's wrong. That has changed. The value in our society says sex is absolutely normal. Go out there and get all you can get. The only thing we've changed is we've said, women, you can do it as well. You go out and enjoy yourselves. We're not going to lock you up in a harem somewhere. You go and have fun. That's the culture of our society. And many Christians, many evangelical Christians, many Christians who really love Jesus have bought in to that culture. And our behavior, our lifestyle when it comes to relationships is no different from the world around us. What does the Bible teach? What have Christians taught down the years? It's ever so simple. It teaches that God intended sex to be, to be between a man and a woman who are married to each other, full stop. And if you go through the various uh, books of the Bible, you can see every other possible option that you can think of and some that you'd never even dream of, and they're mentioned and forbidden. 
There is only one place for sex, the Bible says, between a man and a woman who are married to each other. Like it or lump it, that's what it says. You can argue around some of the texts and bits and pieces, but that is the teaching of the Christian faith. Where Christians have got it wrong is we have then taken sexual sins and we have made them the worst of all possible sins. And at the risk of being controversial, I want to say we're doing it again with a whole gay marriage debate and all that sort of thing. We're taking sexual sins and saying they're the worst of all sins. And we point the finger at people and we condemn people when God's answer to sin is always grace. Hear that. God's answer to sin is always grace. We all sin. Some sins are more obvious than others. Some sins are, are very much in the culture that we're in, but God's answer to sin is always grace and forgiveness. He doesn't call us to judge people. There will be a judgment. I've said it once, I've said it again, because it's true. The consequences of sin and rebellion against God and disobeying God are horrific. But at this moment in time, the gospel is open for forgiveness, for cleansing. And that applies to sins related to sex as same as anything else. We're not doing very well at living differently in terms of our relationships. Hey, and that is not just young people. Please don't think I'm knocking young people. It is right through the age ranges that we have lost the kind of sexual morality that Christians believe was right. Okay, there's two things in there. Talks about sex and it talks about idol worship. So we can all say, hooray, because that's something we don't do. We can't possibly be guilty of idol worship, can we? Well, listen to the words of Jesus. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will de be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You could translate that. You cannot worship both God and money. Money, possessions, the love of them is idol worship. And our society is absolutely and wholeheartedly based on the worship of money and possessions. Our whole economic system would fall apart if we did not worship money. Because the whole economic system of the world is based on the fact that we've all got to get more. We've got to produce more, we've got to consume more, we've got to progress, we've got to have a bigger salary this month than we, this year than we did last year, we've got to have a better house, we've got to have a better car, we've got to upgrade our mobile every five minutes, we've got to have a a new TV, we've got to have a new... It doesn't matter, we've got to keep having new things and more money because our society is based around not the worship of Zeus or Apollo or Diana, but around the worship of money. Strange thing. Do you know the church doesn't point the finger very often at rich people? Have you noticed that? The way we treat people with sexual sin is to point the finger and say, that's disgraceful, and we have big campaigns. I haven't seen a lot of Christian voice 
about the banking scandals that nearly brought the economic system down. I haven't seen a lot of Christian voice about the stuff that goes on day by day, ripping people off, exploiting the poor. Yes, Christians have been prominent in getting fair trade established, and that's a great thing. But there isn't a clear Christian voice about the sin of worshipping money and possessions. Do a little check for yourselves when you get home. Look through the Gospels. Look at the people Jesus met. Look at the way he talks to the woman at the well who'd got five husbands and a sixth who wasn't her husband. Look at the way he treats the woman who was caught in the act of adultery. Look at the way he speaks about the prostitute who comes and anoints his feet with her tears, grace, compassion. Look at what he says about rich people. A much harder challenge. A rich young man comes to Jesus and he's just the guy you'd want to be in your church. You know, what do I have to do to be saved? Jesus says, well, keep the commandments. I've done it. You can't find fault in me. We'd love to have him. He'd be on the dark and he'd be an elder in five minutes. And Jesus says, sell what you have and give to the poor. It's not a command to everybody. It's a command to this guy because Jesus can see that that's what he worships. That's what's central in his life. And follow me. And the man went away sorrowful because he was very rich. When Jesus ran down the road and said, oh, I didn't mean it, honestly. Come back, come. No. There is a great danger in riches. There is nothing evil about being rich. There's nothing evil about owning things. The danger is that the things we own come to own us and we worship them as idols. Our society is very similar to the society in Pergamon. We want to live like everybody else. If everybody else is sleeping around, we will. If everybody else is getting richer and richer, we want it. And Jesus says, repent. Admit you're wrong, that's the first stage of repentance, and then start doing something about it. And there's a different answer for everybody. I can't tell you how to sort your relationships out. I can't tell you how to sort your money and possessions out. You've got to work that out with God. Yes, you may have a, a good Christian friend or an advisor or somebody that you can talk to and pray with that will help you. We're all in it together. But there's no one-size-fits-all recipe. But Jesus says, if you do not repent, I will come and fight against them, that's the ones who are putting forward this teaching, with a sword of my mouth. What a terrible, awful picture. The idea of us as Christians fighting against Jesus. But that's what we're doing if we decide to say, we're going to live how everybody else lives rather than the way Jesus calls us to live. Let me read you some words from 1 John, and then Hannah and the band are going to lead us in a couple of songs. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. In other words, every single one of us is sinners. It may, the, the two sins I've mentioned tonight may not be your particular problem, 
every one of us is sinful. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And here's the great part that goes with it. That would be terrible if it just ended there. If we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Keep that in your mind, whatever else you take away from tonight. Yes, we're all sinners, but the context of sin is God's overwhelming grace that wants to forgive us. Thank you, Hannah.